Welcome back to another volume of Truly Disturbing Tales from Reddit. Today we're going to be narrating three new and settling stories taken directly from the platform. I encourage you all to sit back, grab a snack, and enjoy these terrifying personal accounts. Now, without any further delay, let's jump right in. I worked at a local government agency for a long time. Each summer, we would get a new crop of interns. Most were fine. Some caused issues, like when we caught two of them making out in the file room, but overall, they were just normal kids from high school or college trying to get some work experience. In 2016, my department received an intern later than usual, right in the middle of summer. Warner was a bit older than the usual crowd, around my age, maybe late 20s. We initially hit it off pretty well, and although I found him sort of strange, I didn't mind since he was friendly and we had some common interests. He was the only person in my department who was even close to my age. The interns were all teenagers, and the regular staff averaged around 60 years old, which is older than my mom. I was psyched to have a peer to chat with, so occasionally I would eat lunch with Warner, or stop by his cubicle, and have a chat. His strangeness was mostly an outsized personality, a mix of over-the-top enthusiasm with a bit of social awkwardness, but I got zero bad vibes from the guy. It wasn't long before Warner started having major performance problems at work. He would produce little to no work on most days, no show or arrive late without informing anyone, and generally acted unprofessionally. One day, he showed up for work at 3.15pm, when our workday ended at 4.30. The office manager was livid and told him to go home. His behavior bothered nearly everyone in my office, but I didn't supervise him and we had plenty of slacker interns in the past. While his antics were a bit of a spectacle, it wasn't a big deal to me. If you're wondering why he wasn't let go, two words, political favor. I found out from Warner himself that he was hired because his uncle had donated to the campaign of our big boss, so he wasn't going anywhere. Near the end of that summer, I put in my notice that I was leaving my job and relocating to a new state. Once Warner caught wind of this, he would constantly complain that it sucked I was leaving because we barely had time to become friends. I would always laugh lightly in response and give a sympathetic, yeah. He would start to monopolize my time at work more and more, and it became disruptive to the people who sat near me. I found it slightly annoying, but I also was extremely happy to be leaving that job for reasons unrelated to Warner, and I spent my last month there not caring much about what my coworkers thought. I tolerated Warner lingering by my desk. One day, he caught me leaving work and offered me a ride home. I usually took the bus, and occasionally other coworkers would offer me rides home if they were going my way, so this didn't seem odd to me. I accepted and walked to his car with him. It smelled awful and was full of garbage. He hastily cleared off the passenger seat and apologized for the mess. We got on our way, but once we were on the main road, he started begging me to stop and get dinner with him. I laughed and said he didn't need to ask me that intensely, and said we could stop at a diner on the way. We had a nice meal, with pleasant conversation even. He was intelligent and had a variety of interests, our political positions aligned, and we shared disdain for our cranky old co-workers. I had a good time, 
I expressed that he didn't need to drive me all the way home now that it was late, but he kept insisting. So, I relented. As I directed him towards my house, he started in again with the whining about how our developing friendship was cut short because I was moving. At this point, I was tired of hearing this. The decision to leave my job and move away from home was extremely difficult to make, and I was proud of how bold I was being. I stopped responding and laughing, and his whining began to fade out. We came up to the turn to get onto my street, and as I pointed it out, he accelerated and drove right past it, laughing. I chuckled, almost in a, oh my god, what the f kind of way, thinking that he was just joking around. When I began giving instructions about how to turn around and get back, he started begging me to keep the hangout session going, because he was lonely. This immediately set me on high alert. It suddenly hit me that I'm in a man's car, someone I don't know that well, who doesn't exercise proper behavior at work, which is the only context that I know him from. And now, he's displaying weird behavior outside of work as well. My instinct was to not insist I be let out of his car. I felt as if this would escalate the situation into something bad. And in hindsight, it may have been the right thing to do when I think about the type of person that he turned out to be. I told him we could hang out at the park near my house if he wanted to talk. He seemed to like that idea, and we parked and walked over. The pleasant conversations resumed. Besides the weird clinginess, he was perfectly fine to talk to, until he dumped his entire life story on me, including his prior arrest for theft, his heroin addiction, and related struggles with depression. I tried to be sympathetic, but I was very put off by this. It was a lot of highly personal information all at once, and I was still on alert because of his prior behavior. I tried changing the subject by showing him pics of my dog. I scrolled one pic too far on the roll, and the next photo was of me wearing makeup and posing cutely, way different than the slob that I was at work. He grabbed the phone and went, wow, you are very photogenic. I felt awkward and didn't say anything in response. There was a long silence. Then he launched into a weird tangent about how compatible we were and that we have similar interests, etc., etc. Ultimately, it got to the point where he said that he wished that I wasn't moving so we could try hanging out again, but this time, on a date. I didn't say anything, and he broke the silence with, sorry I'm saying all this stuff. I'm actually high right now. That's why I know where Riverside the bad neighborhood that had previously come up in conversation, is. I went there yesterday to score. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said it, so I'm really sorry. Internally, I freaked out. He had definitely put his drug addiction in the past tense, and I assumed it was something he was recovering from, not currently in the midst of. I also realized I had been in a car that he was operating while he was under the influence. I don't know anything about heroin, so I was clueless, and overall, I just felt very stupid. He immediately started whining and begging me not to judge him or hate him, and kept saying over and over again how nice I am and how understanding I am, that I'm pretty and smart, all of these weird compliments interspersed with talking down about himself. I didn't know what to do, so I smiled reassuringly and told him not to worry, but that I was tired and wanted to go home. That's when he started crying. He had this weird, wheezy sob, but no tears were coming out. 
I sat there silently while he did this, trying to come up with some sort of graceful escape plan. My patience was wearing thin, and my anxiety was now through the roof. It's a weird feeling to be both annoyed and panicky at the same time. I stood up and apologized, said the park was close to my house so I'll just hoof it home, and started to leave when I remembered I left my stuff in his car. Trying a new approach, I casually mentioned that I forgot my stuff in his car and joked that if he wanted my dirty lunch containers, he could keep them. He ceased his bizarre crying, stood up and ran over to his car to unlock it, and I grabbed my stuff out of his back seat. His demeanor changed drastically as he calmly apologized for making things weird and asked if he could drop me off at home so I didn't have to walk alone at night. I said yes, but made him drop me off a block over from my little side street so he wouldn't see which house was mine. I could end it there, but what bothered me the most about this guy happened after this encounter. I'll try to make this part short. A week or two after that weird evening, end of August by this point, I had my last day at the job and moved a thousand miles across the country. Warner would sometimes text me long ramblings, detailing his feelings about himself and about our missed opportunity. I didn't respond to these messages. Now that I wasn't near him, I didn't feel the need to placate. The text stopped after a few weeks, and I all but forgot about him. Fast forward to February, and I get a text from a former coworker. Her message said, Sorry you had to hear about it like this. And her next message was a link to a local news article titled, Man Dies from Wounds in Riverside Stabbing on Wednesday. Because of the way she worded it, I thought Warner was the victim. But when I read the article, it included his mugshot and the charges against him. He was the attacker. He had murdered someone. I felt so shocked and disgusted. I couldn't believe that I knew someone who took another human's life. Later on, I called an old work friend for some of the details. Apparently, shortly after I left the job, Warner was fired for trashing the men's bathroom. Like, he just threw around anything he could lift, pouring out all the soap from the dispensers, turning over trash cans, and scattering debris all over the place. He then lost his apartment. Presumably, some of the articles about the stabbing describe Warner as homeless. I have to assume that that's how he ended up in the aforementioned Riverside. There are a lot of homeless drug addicts who squat in abandoned houses there. I wondered if the man that he stabbed had refused to give him something that he wanted, and that is how he reacted to a hard no. I don't think I made all of the wisest decisions during my interactions with Warner, but I'm glad I was able to avoid setting him off, since he was clearly not stable. Hands down, Warner had to be the worst intern that I'd ever encountered. I live in a small, small town. Like, you blink and you'll miss it. The best we can boast is that we have a single stop sign and a gas station which we only have because of the nearby highway. Any actual semblance of a town is almost half an hour away. So when things get scary out here, it's amplified. The occasional homeless person is no big deal. They're often drifting through. Drug addicts run rampant and will steal everything they can from your house. But it's the normal out here. However, what happened a few years back certainly wasn't normal. Originally, I was dead asleep in my bed. I only woke up because it was burning hot in my room. 
It was summertime, and there wasn't much I could do about that. I just remember tossing and turning until I got a creepy feeling that fell into the pit of my stomach. I glanced over to the bathroom door that was open with the light on. Everything was normal. I left the light on so I wouldn't trip and die if I had to pee in the middle of the night. But next, I glanced at the window directly across from my bed. I had no curtains, but I did have a shitty set of blinds. Part of the blinds had been broken from wear and tear, and the crappy AC output beneath it would make them move back and forth so you'd get a glimpse outside every so often. The yard light was still going, but what made me stop was the outline outside of my window. The figure of someone directly beyond my window pane, almost like it was waiting for the blinds to move to watch me. I didn't have an imagination as a child. That had been trained out of me. But the sight was enough to pour every horror film into my head at that very moment. I squeezed my eyes shut and pulled my blankets over my head and slept in a cloth oven that night. By morning time, the figure was gone. I remember running to my mom's room on the verge of tears in the morning, telling her what had happened. She laughed at me like I was an idiot told me that it was probably just a stray cat that had climbed up there for one odd reason or another. I almost believed her, since my window was pretty high off the ground, but something just didn't sit right with me. Later that day when we were doing yard work, I glanced over at my window and saw one of our metal patio chairs had been pushed up to it. I pointed it out to my mom, who proceeded to chew me out. That's how the cat probably got up there, moron. Stop leaving furniture everywhere but I hadn't moved it. It was heavy enough that I struggled with it. So we moved it back, and so began a pattern. At night, I'd see the figure, complain to my mom, and we'd find a chair moved back every single morning. And this went on for a few weeks. My mother stopped caring about my concerns until one morning we saw where the outside screen of my window had been sliced open. I still remember her shaking her head and complaining about those damn stray cats, the ones that we had still yet to see. I could tell she was unnerved by the development. I couldn't handle it anymore, and I opted to sleep in our living room that night. The only problem was, our kitchen and living room connected, which meant there were always several windows. The first night of my move went well, despite my back hurting from the couch. I avoided my room like the plague. It wasn't until about four days later that we ran into an issue. I woke up and glanced at the clock above the fireplace. It read a little past 3 a.m. I couldn't realize why I'd woken up until it happened again. There was a beam of light shining in from the kitchen window, almost as if someone was shining a flashlight through. I saw it trace along the walls and land on the love seat across from the couch that I was on. I was absolutely mortified. When I told my mom, she continued to laugh at me. I gave in and decided that I would sleep in my dad's room, even though it had a gigantic window in it. He slept in the recliner with a huge TV, so I felt more safe having someone around. The yard light was directly outside the window anyway, so it seemed foolproof. That was until I woke up out of habitual fear and watched through the window across from the bed. Everything seemed normal as time drug on, and I felt like a moron. Maybe my mom was right, that was, until I saw a lone figure come out of the woods by the backyard shed, walk directly under the light, and head to the patio furniture like 
he'd been here plenty of times before. I still remember the large build the man had, and the confidence like he was the one who lived here and wasn't creeping around my yard in the dead of night. I just remember listening to the TV until I fell asleep again, hoping to get another glimpse. My dad would have been pissed if I had woken him up. He was grumpy on a good day, terrifying on a bad. I didn't feel like risking it unless I had solid proof because of just how scared I was. The next morning, my mom chewed me out again for the patio furniture, which was pretty much routine by this point. Although this time, something new happened. She demanded I stop playing in the toolboxes of the garage. A bunch of tools had been taken out and left on our doorstep. Screwdrivers, a large hammer, flashlight. But it wasn't me. I begged with my mom, pleaded with her, just stay up with me one night. We couldn't close our garage because it was an open carport, and I wasn't going to get my ass beaten for touching tools because of someone else. It was driving me mad. Finally, she agreed. That night, we would stay awake in the living room. I finally fell asleep before my mom, but I remember her waking me up in a panic. She pointed to the window that overlooked into our garage. We could see the top of someone's head as they walked back and forth. There was the sound of someone placing metal tools down on brick steps, as if they were trying to be quiet, but couldn't fully muffle it. She whispered for me to go wake my dad. My dad was angry, having been woken up in the middle of the night by his frantic daughter. He grabbed his pistol and headed out the back door, towards the front of the house where the garage was located. We heard my dad screaming and someone dropping tools. Then, the sound of a gunshot. Twice. Crazed footsteps pounding around the garage, and they felt as if they were coming directly from my chest. My mom peeked out the window, and then opened the door, just as my dad stumbled in. He had missed both shots because of his unstable aim, but told us that there was a man crouching at our front door, looking at our door handle. None of us slept that night, and in the morning, we phoned the police from the nearest town. They didn't do much besides ask if anything had been stolen, ask for a description of the man, and then told us to install cameras. But that was it. They said that whoever the guy was probably was just looking for something easy to steal for quick money. If that had been the case, why hadn't he stolen the tools, the generator, the welder, or broken into any of the vehicles just sitting in our garage? We finally set up hunting trail cameras around the house, but nothing has happened since. Coming home from college for holidays, I still have nightmares about this, even years later when I sleep in my own bed. I don't know what he was looking for or why he did the things that he was doing, but whatever the case may be, man at the window, let's not meet. This story dates back to my childhood. I was 12 and my older sister and I were home alone for the weekend. I was waiting for a friend to pick me up and getting restless. There was a knock at the door and thinking it was her, I ran to answer it without checking through the peephole. There was a man standing there with a clipboard and he said that he needed to check our gas meter. I was entrenched in the disappointment of my friend still not having arrived so I just told him, yeah, sure, whatever you need to do. I didn't notice at the time, but he wasn't dressed as a city official. 
He had on a green and purple t-shirt with bold stripes like the host of Blue's Clues. He took a step inside the door and immediately went up the stairs to where our bedrooms were and walked into the open door of my room, the typical girly-girly room with pink and glitter. Thank God my sister came down the stairs at almost that exact same moment. She said, Oh, is that Daphne's dad? Why is he going upstairs? That's when I took the moment to complain about how Daphne wasn't here yet and was going on about how unreliable she was when my sister cut me off. Wait, wait. If Daphne isn't here, then who is that? I said, He's here to read the gas meters. Her face turned white. She flung open the front door and dragged me out, hand clamped over my protesting mouth. She said, Our gas meters are outside. Neither of us had a cell phone. Nobody did. It was the 60s. And obviously, we weren't going back in the house to call the authorities on the landline. Then, my ever-resourceful sister had a stroke of genius. At that very moment, there was a man walking right by our house, and she motioned him over. She spoke to the man clearly and loudly enough that her voice carried directly into our house. Oh, Dad, it's good you're home. There's a man from the city here to read the gas meters upstairs. And just like she had hoped, the man on the street said, What are you talking about? The man that had entered our house, the one in the striped shirt, bolted from within, running down the block before hitting a corner and vanishing from view. The man we were speaking to asked us repeatedly if we were okay, if we needed him to stay and wait in the yard with us until our parents came home. He was a very kind man. We were so startled that we barely thanked him before he ran back in the house, slamming and locking the doors and windows shut. As irate as my sister was that I let someone in the house, she begged me to not call the police because my parents left her in charge and she worried that she'd be in trouble. I didn't want to catch any heat from carelessly allowing some guy in, so I was on the same page with her. But three weeks later, a girl in our community went missing. Same MO. She was home alone, and authorities found the door open with no signs of forced entry. My sister and I discussed our options, but deep down, we knew we had no choice but to come clean. We told the police everything. I don't know if it ever helped, but they did tell us that they had reason to believe that it was likely the same man. They also tracked down the man who had helped us on the street. Turns out, we already knew him. He worked in the butcher shop, but in our panic, we didn't recognize him. He was lifelong friends with our family after that. Our parents were mortified. They weren't angry with us, just glad we were okay. Though they did have to review all the rules of caution and didn't leave us home alone for quite a while. They ultimately found the missing neighborhood girl. Unfortunately, not alive. According to the police, it was likely that she had been held for a few days before being burned alive. They never did catch the guy in the striped shirt. From what I remember, he was probably in his 30s back in the early 1960s. So my guess is that he's long gone by now, whether from natural causes or karma for the life that he was living. Both my sister and I felt a tremendous amount of guilt for being so focused on not getting in trouble that we kept our mouths shut when it potentially would have helped that girl 
if we were more forthcoming in the moment. That is something that I still deal with to this day. I thank the Lord for my sister's resourcefulness and quick action that day, though. I do not doubt that it made all the difference in the world between us surviving and facing the same fate as that other neighborhood girl.